today. And that's why he answers the questions like, what about the flood and the rock layers and the fossils and so forth and so on? And that's really what this session is all about. And we're going to dive in deep into those topics. But before we do, I want to open this session with an interesting question I think most Christians have probably thought about at some point in their life. And it's this one. Where was the Garden of Eden located? In Australia, like Ken says, because he's from Australia. <laughs> he doesn't say that, all right? Or in America, or somewhere around the Tigris and Euphrates River, or number four, we don't know. What do you think most Christians are going to say? Which number? Most are going to say three. Exactly right. And why? Well, you go to a biblical text, as we should. We see in Genesis chapter 2, it describes out of the Eden, this one river that divides into four different rivers, one into four. And two of those four are the Tigris and Euphrates River. You see those two names. And then we look on a map today, and we see Tigris and Euphrates, and we think, aha, there are two of the four. And so many would suggest maybe the Garden of Eden is somewhere around the Shinar Valley, that area. But let me ask you something. Do you see one river dividing into four like the Bible describes? No. Does that mean the Bible is wrong or that something has changed? Something's changed. You see, the Bible also describes a global catastrophic flood in Genesis 6 through 9 that wrecked this world, destroying and burying the original Garden of Eden. We probably have no good idea what the actual original garden was. And some say, okay, well, how come the same names? Well, we actually understand why that is. I mean, think about it. In America, there are places in America with the same names as places over in England. And we know why that is, right? When people left the old world, they came to the new world and brought some of those old world names with them. Noah and his family are going to do a very similar thing. They're going to leave the old world, get on the ark, float for quite a while, come back down to new world, new topography, new landscape, and use some of those same old world names. And here's why I start just with that little simple illustration, just to show us how easy it is at times to try to take today's world and squeeze that into the Bible instead of starting with the Bible and using this to explain the world around us. And we must start from here. When we try to squeeze things into God's Word, it's always, always bad. We, talk about, uh, we mentioned this morning about how when you try to squeeze the idea of millions of years into the Bible, it ends up undermining biblical authority, multiple biblical doctrines, even the gospel itself, no matter how you try to do it. And there's also another consequence into trying to squeeze millions of years into the Bible. If you attempt to do so, you also must embrace the idea that Noah's flood was just a local event and not global. You say, why? Well, if you accept that the rock layers were laid down over millions of years, they're the evidence for the millions of years, then that means Noah's flood could not have been global around 4,400 years ago because if it was, it would have ripped up all those rock layers and laid down its own 4,400 years ago. So therefore, Noah's flood must have been just a local event. And by the way, this is what most of our Christian colleges and seminaries are teaching today. That Noah's flood flooded just Noah's little universe, the Mesopotamian Valley, essentially modern-day Iraq. But if Noah's flood was just a local event, there are some questions we need to be asking that just seem to be like common sense. For example, if the flood was local, why did Noah build an ark? Right? Couldn't God just do this? Hey, Noah, psst, come here. I'm going to kill everything here. I need you to walk over there, right? Just move, Noah. Get out of the way if it's a local event. Uh, if, if the flood was local, why did God send animals to the ark? They could run away from the flood or let them die during the local flood. There'd be plenty of others to reproduce after it was done. 
If the flood was local, why make the ark so big? We'll see here in a bit, the ark was huge. Why make it so big just for local critters? Well, here's a fun question. If the flood was local, then why send birds to the ark? Birds can do what? Fly away. They have no problem with a localized flood. And we could go on with questions like that. There are many others we could talk about. But most important of all is, what does God's word say? And we go to the text and we reverse this like this. Genesis 6, 13 and 17. God said, I'm going to put an end to all people. The earth is filled with violence. I will destroy both them and the earth. That's important. Hold on to that. I'm going to bring the flood waters over the entire earth, all life under the heavens, every creature with the breath of life, everything on earth will perish. The Bible really could not be more clear. It goes on to say in chapter 7 that during the flood, all the high mountains under the entire earth were covered by more than 20 feet of water. Now, if the highest mountains on earth were covered by more than 20 feet of water, but the flood was just a local event, you would have to get something like this to take place. Which would be cool, right? <laughs> Love to see that. But that's definitely not what the Bible is describing. And then as a result of the flood, we see, it tells us that every living thing died. Everything on earth died. Only Noah and his family were saved. The Bible could not be more clear. And then we see stuff like this. Think about it like this. This little cartoon brings home a good point. You got a father talking to a son. who says, look at that beautiful rainbow. It's a promise from God that he'll never again flood the earth like he did in the days of Noah. And by the way, the rainbow is a sign of that covenant. We should maybe think about that more. And the son says, well, my Christian and college professor said that Noah's flood did not cover the entire earth. Well, he told you it's just a localized flood. That's what he said. So he believes that God promised never again to send a localized flood. If that's the case, then God has broken his promise numerous times over. And, of course, that would not work. And, of course, Texas can tell us about that right now with what they're going through. So, very clear from biblical text, it was a global event. Also, go to the New Testament. New Testament authors refer to the event as a global event. The entire world was destroyed. Only Noah and his family were saved. Jesus in Matthew 24 refers to a second coming, a global event, similar to Noah's event, the flood, a global event. We see all these comparisons. The Bible is clear. It was a global catastrophic flood. So with that being said, there are certain questions we need to be able to answer from a biblical perspective. Questions like this one kind of mentioned this morning, but go into more detail now. How did Noah get all the animals onto the ark? We hear this question all the time. I get this question all, people ask me this all the time. Sometimes nicely, sometimes not so nicely. All right, and I tend to respond with two questions of my own. My first question is this. I ask, how big was the ark? Most of the time, they'll say, I don't know. I then ask, well, how many animals did Noah take onto the ark? Most of the time, they will say, I don't know. I just know he couldn't do it. <laughs> I do get more worried, though, when they say something like, there's no way Moses could have fit all those animals on the ark. Just couldn't do it. <laughs> exactly, wasn't around. Yeah, just nod my head. They get really confused. But anyway... Uh, so if you answer those two questions, this answer is really not that hard. So let's look at the first one. How big was the ark? Do you think it looked more like A or B? <laughs> yes, B, absolutely. As we mentioned this morning, we've got to get rid of these fairy tale arcs that confuse so many people. No, the ark was huge. Over 500 feet long and 85 feet wide, 51 feet tall. It had three different levels. Literally a floating warehouse, just a huge structure. If you go to the ark encounter and walk around, you're going to get tired. 
It's just a lot of walking. It is a gigantic vessel. Vessel Had uh, dimensions equal to modern-day cargo ship to give the right balance of strength and comfort stability you would need during a global flood, and capacity equal to roughly around 500 railroad stock cars, which is like an eight-mile-long train. So it was huge. It really was. But then was it big enough? How many animals did he take? Well, the Bible is clear that Noah only took land-dwelling, air-breathing animals onto the ark. No fish on the ark. Plenty of water outside the boat, all right? No whales, no dolphins, no jellyfish on the ark, etc. Also, for many good practical reasons, most likely God brought young adults to Noah to enter the ark, especially the bigger animals. We talked about that more in the dinosaur talk. And then maybe most important of all, I mentioned this this morning, the Bible is clear Noah brought two of each kind onto the ark. Not two of each species, but two of each kind. The Bible says this over and over again. And again, the word kind in the Bible, for the most part, is equal to about the family level of modern-day classification. So again, in case you missed it, Noah did not take 400 pairs of dogs with him on the ark. Again, he most likely never saw a chihuahua or a poodle in his life. I will contend he was a blessed man, all right? <laughs> you see, Noah, he just took two of the dog kind, two of the elephant kind, and two too many of the cat kind. Just two of the basic kinds of animals onto <laughs> the ark. So how many kinds were there? How many kinds would Noah need to take onto the ark to, count, to account for all the variations we see today and the extinct variations within the fossil record? We did a ton of research on this with the opening of the ark encounter, and a max number of kinds in a worst-case scenario would be roughly around 1,400 total kinds. Average size of an animal a little bit bigger than a rabbit. Multiplied by 2, 7, or 14 to some, you're looking at three to 4,000 total individual animals in a realistic scenario. 5,000 in a bad case scenario, 7,000 in a max worst case scenario. And that's what we did with the Ark Encounter. And those 7,000 fit with no problem at all. Plenty of room left over for Noah, his family, food, supplies, no problem at all. Now, quick little question here. Does that number include dinosaurs? Very good. I'll give you a hint. The answer is not no. All right? <laughs> yes, it does. But dinosaurs, we don't have time for that right now. A different talk for a different day. But yes, the dinosaurs were definitely on the ark. But what about the flood itself, though? What about the mechanism? What happened during the flood? And if you look at the Bible, it tells us something interesting in Genesis 6, 13 about the purpose of the flood. We kind of skim over this. You see, God told Noah, I'm going to destroy both them and the what? Earth. Part of the purpose of the flood was to wreck this world. That most likely we would live in a junkyard compared to what it used to be before the flood. And if you look in the Bible, it's very intriguing that before the flood, people on average lived to be over 900 years of age. What do you do for 900 years? I have no idea. Right? No, not even a guess, but they're living for 900 years. But then after the flood... Here's your flood line. After the flood, they're living for just 400 years, then just 200 years, then just 100 years of age. Why? Well, genetic bottleneck most likely plays a role in this, but it's also safe to assume that God accomplished his purpose of wrecking this world with the flood. So what happened during the flood to wreck the world in such a catastrophic way? Well, if you look in Genesis chapter 7, go to God's word, verses 11 and 12, with the initiation of the flood, we read this. A common verse, but we skip over a couple of details typically. It says, on that day, all the springs of the deep burst forth or broke open, and the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the rain fell 40 days and 40 nights. Now, if you've talked about the flood, if you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you've heard about the 40 days and nights of rain, right? 
most likely sang songs somewhere involving one of those things. But for the most part, we do not talk about all the springs of the great deep, verse 4. What is that referring to? We look at the language, springs of the great deep refers to subterranean water, water underneath the crust of the earth. And that's not where we still find this today, actually a lot of it. And so you yeah, water underneath the crust of the earth. And the Hebrew verb there for burst forth means to break through and move catastrophically. This verb is used in a couple other places. For example, over in the book of Numbers, uh, when God told Moses, hey, Moses, take Korah and his family and friends, put them over there. You and everybody else go over there. And what happened to Korah and his peoples? Remember? The ground opened up and swallowed them. Same Hebrew verb there for opening up. Burst forth, the ground opens up. It's used in the book of Zechariah when the Messiah, his foot touches the Mount of Olives and there's a huge earthquake. The ground opens up. Same Hebrew verb for the ground opening up, moving catastrophically. And the Bible says the crust of the earth cracked open, moved catastrophically all over the earth, all on the same day. Let's think for a moment. What happens today when you move the crust of the earth just a little bit? What do you get? Earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activity, right? You remember this? Back in 2011, six years ago now, over in Japan, that tsunami that caused mass devastation. Do you know what happened off the coast of Japan underneath the waters to cause that tsunami to cause that much damage? Here's what happened. Look close. Two tectonic plates were butted up against each other like this. And here's what happened to cause that much devastation. You ready? Look close. Do you see it? It's literally all that happened. One plate nudged another plate. And from that nudge, it caused a massive tsunami that caused that much devastation. If that's what happens when you nudge one plate against another, what happens when you break them up and move them catastrophically all over the earth all at the same time? Guys, you're going to get earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic activity on a scale we cannot even begin to fathom. It would be enough to destroy the world, which was the point of the flood. It's not only the mechanism of the flood, but it's also the duration of the flood. You look in the biblical account, the Bible tells us that the waters rose for 150 days. So for 150 days, the waters continued to rise. And then they received for another 150 days. So for 300 days, the waters covered the earth, moving back and forth with tsunamis, turbidity currents, huge tidal changes, moving mud, dirt, and minerals form the majority of your fossil record during those 300 days. Actually, the flood itself in total was over a year in length. We don't think about that very often. Why? Well, we can only assume to accomplish God's purpose of destroying humanity and destroying this world, and God accomplished his purpose. And some say, well, okay, well, that makes sense, but then what about, uh, where did the water go from the flood if it covered the whole earth? A common question we get, Right. Which is an interesting question because right now, kind of cool, if you were to press down the mountain ranges and raise up the ocean basins, right now the entire earth will be covered by about two miles of water. There's still plenty of water right now on the earth. And by the way, we're covered by about 70% water right now, even with the mountain ranges up and basins down. And also, think about why do we find marine critters fossilized on top of mountains all over the world? At the Himalayas, the Alps, the Rockies, even on Mount Everest, we find fossilized marine critters like clams and fish and so forth. How do you get a fossilized marine critter on top of a mountain? Well, the Bible seems to imply how the flood ended in Psalm 104. Towards the end of the flood, the mountains rose up and the valleys sank down. As the mountains rise up, they carry with them the newly formed fossil record from the flood event. As the valleys sink down, the waters rest off into the newly formed ocean basins. 
Some say, okay, but what about Pangea? You ever heard about that? One single landmass supercontinent? Well, the Bible seems to apply that as well. Genesis 1-9. God says, let the water be gathered to one place. If the water is in one place, that implies the land is in one place. Something like Pangea or Rodinia even. And some say, okay, well then what happened? The flood. The fountains of the great deep burst forth, cracking the crust of the earth, moving it catastrophically, causing continental sprint as opposed to continental drift. And by the way, you do the math. If you want to move a tectonic plate, long, slow, snail-paced processes do not produce enough energy to move a tectonic plate. If you want to move a tectonic plate, you need a catastrophic process that makes a lot of energy at one time to move those sorts of things, like you would have when the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Also, we've seen the sea, the scars of this event all around the earth. Here's a mid-oceanic ridge. goes around the earth like the seam of a baseball. There are fault lines all over the world, and when they move, they cause earthquakes and tsunamis and so forth. But those things are just dim, tiny leftovers from the major event around 4,350 years ago. And to give us maybe a better idea of what that may have been like from a biblical perspective, here's a video we show at the Creation Museum called The Flood Initiation. Anybody want to be outside the boat? No, right? If you think about it, a couple of amazing things about this historical event. First of all, it's obvious we see God's judgment on sin, right? That's pretty clear. That's what's taking place. But don't miss his mercy, his providence, and his salvation. But let's think about it. In that global flood, which was God's global judgment of sin, there is the ark of salvation. Within that ark are those eight people. From those eight people will come humanity later on. From that human line will come the Messiah later who provides salvation for our souls. So we see God's justice and his judgment, but also his mercy and his love in the same event in the flood. So cool to think about. But they did survive the flood due to God's protective hand. They got off the ark. They offered sacrifices, thanking the Lord they were alive. They were most likely glad to be off the ark as well. I bet it didn't smell good. All right, but anyway. And God told them to refill the earth, and they got right on that. And Noah's son, Shem, he had a son. And he named his son 
Arfaxad. Who, na- who names our kid Arfaxad? <laughs> that poor boy, all right? But don't you know that a little Arfaxad will one day be sitting on Grandpa Noah's lap, and he's going to say, hey, Grandpa, you know, where is everybody else? Why are we the only people left on earth? And of course, Noah is going to tell him about that flood. Actually, they're going to talk about that event for a really long time. And it's intriguing. If you kind of graph this out, Noah's son, Shem, who lived through the flood, lived long enough after the flood to tell about that event directly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's pretty cool. Now, we don't know if they had the conversation, but he lived long enough to do so. And of course, they're going to keep talking about this, even at their Tower of Babel, as people get spread out all over the world. We'll talk more about this later on with their different languages and cultures. They'll keep passing down that account of the global flood. They'll get marred over time, but have a basis in truth. But that's why we find over 300 flood legends all around the world that sound a whole lot like Genesis. Really neat. Just two quick examples here. There's a legend over in Hawaii. They have this legend of the first man, Kunihana. After his death, the world became a wicked, terrible place. And there was one good man left. His name was Nu'u. I bet you know who that is. All right. And he made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. And waters destroyed the earth. Only Nu'u and his family were saved. Sounds really familiar. Or over in China, they had the legend of Fuhai, the father of their civilization. And they say that Fuhai, his wife, three sons and three daughters, escaped a great flood. Afterwards, they repopulated the world. Sounds a whole lot like the flood. And just, those just go on and on all over the world. And speaking of ancient Chinese culture, look at this old Chinese dialect where they combined multiple symbols to make their other words. Look at the three symbols they combined to make the word boat. Really interesting. Vessel, eight, people. Where'd they get that from? It's kind of cool if you keep looking at this stuff, look at their word for man and paradise and tree. They all have references, it seems, back to the book of Genesis. Pretty cool. Also, after the flood, is the perfect time for an ice age. <laughs> Who loves a saber-toothed squirrel? Don't be afraid. Don't lie. All right, a bunch of heathens. All right, very good. Just checking. <laughs> it's a funny little critter. Uh, but there definitely was an ice age, no doubt about that. And here's the thing. To get an ice age requires a weird combination of events. You see, what you need, you need warm waters, warm oceans, to cause a whole lot of evaporation to get moisture into the sky, a lot of it. But then you need cooler continents for that moisture to come down in the form of snow and ice and to accumulate. So to get an ice age, you need warm oceans and cooler continents. That's a really hard thing to get, but that's exactly what you would have after the flood. Because of the fountains of the great deep bursting forth, that subterranean water closer to the mantle will be heated. Also, lava flows into the ocean will increase their temperature. The oceans will be very warm. And then because of volcanic activity during the flood, throwing aerosols and dust into the sky, blocking sunlight, you're cooling the continents. As a result of the flood, you have warm oceans and cooler continents. Exactly what you have for a flood. Computer simulations show with those conditions after the flood, you can get an ice age to roughly come and go in about 500 years after the flood. And this ice age is really important for a couple of different reasons. Here's a couple of examples. One, during these ice age, since much of the Earth's water will be trapped in the form of land glaciers, that's going to drop the ocean levels all around the world. Drop the ocean levels and you reveal land bridges between the major continents during the ice age. So during this time, people and animals can easily migrate all over the world. As the ice age recedes, glaciers melt down, ocean levels rise back up, land bridges disappear, and certain animals get trapped in certain places. And maybe that's why we only find kangaroos in Australia, so forth and so on. Pretty cool. Also, 
People say, okay, well, that makes sense. But then can the flood really explain billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid in my water, all over the earth? And indeed, it can. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at fairly quickly. But before we do, just remember that the rock layers and fossils exist in the present and must be interpreted with a worldview, as we talked about this morning. And the key is simply this. If you start with the wrong assumptions, you'll most likely get the wrong conclusions. I reminded of the story of um, a father going to pick up his little girl after Sunday school class one morning. And he, he went to go get her, and she just came out of the room, and she just was beaming. He said, honey, what you learned today? She said, dad, it was so great. She said, today we learned that God made Adam from the dust. He said, okay. And then we learned it wasn't good for man to be alone. He said, okay. She said, and then we learned that God put Adam to sleep, took out all his brains, and made a woman. <laughs> the ladies always laugh harder, by the way. Uh, no. Yeah, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions, of course. And then remember, we all agree rock layers and fossils exist. No doubt about that. We see them everywhere. The question is, questions actually, is how did they get there? And then what do their features confirm? Long, slow, gradual processes over millions of years or rapid catastrophic processes like during the flood? So that's what we're going to look at right now. So we'll start with the rocks first. And then during the flood, we would expect the rock layers to be settled into distinct layers based on a process called hydrodynamic setting of sediment particles. Hydrodynamic sorting of sediment particles. A really fun thing to say. Get your tongue twisted. Makes you feel smart if you say it right, though. All this means is that in moving water, different dirt particles will set onto distinct layers based on their size, weight, density, and circumference. Really easy to demonstrate. You can take a jar, put different types of dirt in there like clay, sand, or silt, shake the jar up, set it down, it'll set onto layers for you right in front of your eyes based on those properties. Just a common phenomenon. You can do that with water or air, not hard to demonstrate. You might have seen one of these before. You take it, you flip it upside down, they settle into layers for you right in front of your eyes. Why? The black sand particles are heavier than the light ones. That's why. And some will say, okay, but doesn't it take a long time to make a rock layer? No, water, dirt, minerals, right conditions, you can make rock layers in no time flat. We do an artificial version of that with concrete, but we see a confirmation of this everywhere. For example, here's a ship's bell encased by rock. Here's a clock in a rock. There's a spark plug in a rock. None of those things are millions of years old, right? Or when I was at the Grand Canyon a few months ago, over in April, spent nine days going down the Colorado River. It was pretty awesome. Uh, and then we saw a lot of really cool features. This was one of them. On the bank of uh, the little Colorado, this sand was literally turning into rock after just a few months because it was laden with minerals when it was deposited. Turning to stone in just months. Doesn't take that long. And some say, okay, but what about things like coal and oil? They require a long time, right? No. Organic material, heat, pressure, and water, you can make them really quickly. As this refinery in Texas shows us, they said, what Mother Nature took a long time to do, we do in around 30 minutes. Same thing with coal. It does not take a long time to form coal. Heat, pressure, organic material, add some water, you can make it in no time flat in days or weeks. It does not take that long. And of course, we mentioned this morning, Mount St. Helens, when it erupted back in 1980, it produced rock layers, hundreds of them in hours or days. It did not take long periods of time. It formed the mini Grand Canyon in literally nine hours. Does not take that long. Also, as we look at these rock layers all over the earth, something amazing we notice is that these rock layers tend to cover large portions of entire continents or even multiple continents. How do you get one rock layer laid down at one time to be deposited, 
quickly, rapidly. You'll need a flood to do that. To kind of summarize this phenomenon, let me show you a clip from our uh, geologist, Dr. Andrew Snelling, talking about this. Evidence number three. Rapidly deposited sediment layers right across the continents. We find that everywhere we look. Look at the red wall limestone, full of fossils in the Grand Canyon. Yet the same limestone layer is found in the same position over in Pennsylvania, then over in England, and even in the Himalayas. The chalk beds, the White Cliffs of Dover, we find the same chalk beds in Europe, in the Middle East, over into Kazakhstan, we find the same chalk beds with the same fossils in Texas and the Midwestern United States, we find the same chalk beds in Western Australia. The coal beds of Pennsylvania and West Virginia are also found in, in England and Europe, right across to the Ural Mountains. Those features scream a global flood. Also, the individual features of the rock layers themselves, as we look around the world, we see them stacked on top of one another like pancakes. Just one right on top of the other with straight lines across in many places, literally with no signs of slow erosion, topography chain, like they're laid down very quickly. This picture is from the Grand Canyon. Now, if they were laid down over millions of years, we'd expect to see something like this all over the place. Erosion over time, dirt fills in, things are very pretty. It's not what we observe. This is what we observe, one on top of the other, like they're laid down very quickly and rapidly, one after the other. We see examples of this all over the place. One's at the, great, at the Grand Canyon. I was there and saw the great unconformity, my friend John Albert pointing it out here. This is pretty amazing. One rock layer right on top of the other goes down through the canyon for a long distance. And here's the crazy thing from the evolutionary perspective. They suggest this rock layer here is 1.5 billion years old. This rock layer here is 500 million years old. There's literally 1 billion years of missing history right here with no signs that anything ever happened. Just gone does not fit the paradigm or the evidence. Also, the kind of a cool little side note here, when I was at the Grand Canyon, here's another spot for the unconformity, the great unconformity. This is granite basement crystalline rock. Most likely, this right here is creation weak rock made around 6,000 years ago. This sandstone right here is the first layer of rock laid down during the flood. So right here, I'm sitting on creation weak rock while touching flood rock at the same time. How cool is that? All right, so I just, that's one of my favorite things. Got a bunch of pictures of that. But we see confirmation of this rapid deposition. You see, if you were to cut sideways into the Grand Canyon, this is what you would see. One rock layer, right on top of the other, with no signs of slow erosion or topography chain, and then signs of massive erosion off the top. It's like they were laid down quickly, and then massive erosion took place off the top as the waters receded into newly formed ocean basins towards the end of the flood. Also, within the fossil uh, layers, we find things like fossilized tracks, like here at the Grand Canyon, fossilized ripples, fossilized raindrops. You say that's cool, but why is it important? Well, you know how when you go to the beach and you walk on the sand, anybody that's like the beach? I don't like the beach, right? You walk on the sand and you leave footprints that turn to stone and stay there for millions of years? <laughs> is that what happens to your footprints? No. Now, what happens to them? They get eroded very quickly, right? So how do you get these sort of soft sediment formations to harden into stone? Well, you had to do it basically like this. Lay down a layer of dirt, and while it's still kind of soft and impressionable, had these formations form. Then get another layer of dirt to come in right on top of it and fill in those impressions to give them time to harden and turn to stone. That requires one layer being laid down, one right on top of it after the other. Requires a rapid laying down of those rock layers. Also, with the fossilized tracks, pretty interesting. I saw these at the Grand Canyon. You find these fossilized tracks, they're going up through the fossil record. And then typically, you find the dead critter higher up in the rock layers. 
Like in this case right here, supposedly a million years later. Not really fit the evidence, right? It does fit the global flood because if you think about it, when the rock layers are being laid down, things don't want to get buried alive. It's a bad way to go, right? So this trilobite is digging, 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 leaving behind these tracks, does not want to die, but eventually runs out of gas and becomes a fossil higher up in the rock layers. Really fits the biblical event very well. Also, within these rock layers, we find a lack of evidence of something called bioturbation. You might say to yourself, wow, that's a big word. I have no idea what that is. If you're a parent, yes, you do. It simply means life leaves a mess. Amen? It just does. Same thing in the rock layers. After rock layers are deposited after a flood or a hurricane or something like that, they don't, those rock layers do not stay pretty very long. What happens is critters start digging around, and they're trying to find food or make a home. And these beautiful rock layers disappear really quickly. But yet all over the world, we find beautiful rock layers one on top of the other with no signs of life ever messing them up. It's almost like life did not have time to mess them up, like they're laid down too quickly, like during a year-long global flood. Also, all over the world, we find these sort of features, which are astounding. Here are multiple rock layers at a mountain range, bent at over 90 degrees of an angle, and they did not break. In some cases, they did not even crack. You ever try to bend a rock? That's a bad idea, right? Something's going to break, you or the rock. But rocks don't bend. So how do you bend all these rocks without heat, mind you, into over 90 degrees of an angle without them breaking? Here's about the only way you can do it without heat. Lay them down all at the same time, like during a flood. Then bend them towards the end of the flood in a similar direction while they're all still soft, like toothpaste. And then have them harden in this newly bent formation. And we see this literally all over the world. Here at the Grand Canyon, I'm over at the Carbon Canyon over this great bent rock layer. That's me right there. So excited to get that picture. That's actually me at that canyon. And so these rock layers are bent at 90 degrees, did not even crack, and there's no heat involved. Screams rapid deposition. Further down the canyon, here's the bright angel shell bent at a crazy angle. Again, no cracking, just bent. Amazing to look at. Also, we find polystrate fossils all over the world. Poly means multiple. Straight means rock layers. These are fossils that go through multiple rock layers, like this tree fossil that goes through three different rock layers, supposedly separated by hundreds of thousands of years. Question, here in Washington, how long does a dead tree stand up? Five years, 10 years, 20 years, 100 years? Surely not thousands or millions, right? But yet all over the world, we find these polystrate fossils, these are just trees for examples, going through multiple rock layers, in some cases upside down. Great evidence those rock layers are not millions of years old. Also, who's ever heard, gone to a cave and you heard the same spiel from the uh, tour, tour guide, don't touch the formations they took millions of years to form. You ever heard that, right? And of course, you had these stalactites that hang all tight to the ceiling. The stalagmites are like mounds on the ground. If those things grow together to form a column, that is scientifically called a column. <laughs> it's a literal name, which is fine. All right, but, and the old formula used to suggest it took around 100,000 years to get one cubic inch of flowstone formation. The water comes down with the minerals. The water evaporates, leaves the minerals behind, and they accumulate slowly. Does not take a long time, though, if you got lots of water and lots of minerals. Tons of examples of this underneath the Lincoln Memorial. Look at these stalactites that grew in just 50 years, five feet long. Does not take a long period of time. Or over in Australia, they shut down this mine, opened it up 50 years later to a shock 
Look at the stalactites and mice that grew in just 50 years. Notice the miners for scale. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Over in Wyoming, they, they had these hot mineral springs where they piped up this hot mineral water. They left the stuff there. The pipes kept bringing up the water with the minerals, and those minerals began to accumulate. Kind of like this. You ever seen this on the sink before? Where it leaves behind the minerals like that? And by the way, a little side note, my wife makes me tell you those are not our sinks. All right? <laughs> just for clarification. But over in Wyoming, this water kept, it kept coming up, and the minerals kept depositing. Look what accumulated in just 100 years. And that is a whole lot of lime, all right? That's going to take some lime away, I'm just saying, some scrubbing. <laughs> Here's another one down the road. Here's another one. does not take long periods of time. Dr. Cherry, uh, Jerry Trout, wrote this book, Caving into Reality, talking about these sorts of features. He says, what geologists used to believe was fact in terms of dating a cave is now speculation. From 1924 to 1988, there was a sign about Carlsbad that read it was 260 million years old. Then in 1998, they changed the sign to read 7 and 10 million years old. Then for a little while, the sign read it was 2 million years old. And now, the sign is gone. (laughs) Yeah, praise God, right? And we could keep going with the rock layers, but you get the idea. The features of the rock layers scream a global rapid deposition and really wash away the idea of millions of years. Let's look at the fossils, though. Look at the features of the fossil record in these rock layers. The first thing they recognize about the fossils is, is that they are a record of death and God's judgment. That's what they are. And actually, it's intriguing. Around 95% of the fossil record is made up of marine critters without a backbone, marine invertebrates. Why is 95% of the fossil record made up of marine critters? I think because it's laid under a global flood, right? And also, here's the thing. As we talk about fossils, it requires special conditions to make a fossil. When something dies, it does not automatically become a fossil. When something dies, this is what happens, which is a good thing. This way, dead things don't accumulate by the side of the road and in our neighborhood. They get eaten by scavengers. Decomposition takes place. If you think about it, millions of buffalo were killed out west for the past 200 years and did not fossilize. To get a fossil requires a special process. Same thing in the water, mind you. When a fish dies in the water, it doesn't gradually sink to the bottom, get covered by dirt, and become a fossil. Typically, when something dies in the water, it bloats, it floats, and you get smelly water, and critters eat the leftovers. So how do you get a fossil? Special rapid process. Here's what you got to do. Just for example, if you want to make a fossil, let's say you want to make a fossil out of your pet fish Nemo. <laughs> you see where this is going. Okay, so... Nemo's swimming around, just minding his own business. And you take a whole bunch of dirt, put some water and minerals in it, mix it all up, kind of like concrete. And as Nemo's swimming around, dump that whole composition on Nemo. And bury him deeply and quickly and protect him from scavengers and bacteria and oxygen decomposition. And then Nemo may become a fossil. Yay. (laughs) Poor Nemo, all right? Kids don't do that, by the way. But anyway... (laughs) But it's a rapid process, very typically. We see tons of examples of this rapid process, a couple of those. Here's a fish fossilized in the very act of eating another fish. Pretty much instantaneous. This poor guy did not get to finish his last meal. That's why I call this fossil the Last Supper. (laughs) Which is horrible, I do understand, all right? Of course, you saw the petrified ham earlier. Mentioned that one earlier. The fossilized ichthyosaur in the process of giving birth. Here's a felt hat that turned to stone in around 20 or 30 years after being left in a cave. Became the first ever hard hat on record. That was an interesting find. Um, it's a horrible joke, but anyway. <laughs> 
Here's a, here's a cool example. This is a dog that ran up a tree over in Georgia and got stuck. They found it about 20 years later. It already turned to stone. They cut it out, put it on display, and they named it Stucky. Which is funny and sad all at the same time. It's okay, all right. But you see, this is the idea. It takes a special, typically rapid process to make these fossils. And that requires a catastrophic event like the global flood. Also, with these fossils, some of their features, they just scream rapid deposition not that long ago. For example, we find a lot of what I call, my own personal definition, I call them fresh fossils. Here's what I mean by fresh. For example, this shrimp fossil right here supposedly 300 million years old. First of all, first thing you notice, what's it look like to you? Shrimp. It forgot to evolve for 300 million years. Stayed the exact same. And then if you notice it retained its color and the fine detail, those things should have been gone a long time ago. And then when the discoverers of this fossil found it and cracked it open, they said it had a fishy smell to it. That's what I mean by fresh. Or this uh, squid fossil, supposedly 150 million years old, its ink was still fresh enough to write with. Or I showed you this one this morning, and literally I could show you so many others from non-biblical secular institutions of where we're finding fresh, soft dinosaur tissue in dinosaur bones. The tissue from the dinosaur is still there, still stretchy with blood vessels and red blood cells still intact. Those things cannot last more than thousands of years after the creature's death. Great evidence there, most just thousands of years old. Also, all over the world, we find massive fossil graveyards. When I say massive, I'm talking massive. Not just millions, but in many cases, billions upon billions. In some places, closer to a trillion fossils buried in one area. And they're all mixed up with all sorts of unique critters. Like you have dinosaurs with turtles and sharks and so forth. How do you bury billions of things at one time and have them become fossils? And it's got to be quick. I think you need a global flood, all right? And these fossil graveyards cover three-fourths of the Earth's land surface, cover thousands of square miles, and they require rapid burial. And guys, there is no mechanism in the present forming the sort of fossil graveyards that formed in the past. Something very different, very unique happened in the past. It's called Noah's Flood. Also, here's this issue. Me and the teens talked about this the other night. You may have missed that, but there's this issue. We talked about evolution, right? We don't see evolution happening today. We don't see one kind of critter changing to a whole different kind of critter. We don't see a transition. We don't see the uh, crawl, the literal bird, dog, banana fish, gray white horse, linaroo, or the squalosaurus. If you did, that'd be weird, all right, and scary. We're well, a little bit cool, all right? The squalosaurus might be on a uh, scary big teeth. But anyway, the point is we don't see one kind changing to a whole different kind, like from a fish to an amphibian to a reptile to a mammal. To a human. Now, if there was an evolutionist up here with me, he'd say, but Brian, you're being silly. Of course we don't see this happening today because evolution happens too slowly. You can't see it happening, which is convenient. And I would still argue, but okay, there should be some observable transition even today of features changing, like from a, a bill to a beak or an arm to a wing or a lung to a gill. There should be some sort of intermediate transition, but okay, let's say I give you all that then where should the evidence be for these mass changes over time? It should be where? Fossil record. There should be literally billions, if not trillions, of these clear intermediates over all these billions of years showing the transition from fish to amphibians to reptiles to mammals. And guys, they're just not there. There's a handful. The evolutionists will argue over amongst themselves with really no consensus, but the point is there should be trillions. 
And the honest evolutionist knows this. And you know who understood this best, ironically? Darwin. Without reading the whole quote here, this is from his book, The Origin of Species. He says, if my theory is true, I'll kind of paraphrase this, why isn't every single rock layer full of these intermediate links? Surely, geology, the rock layers, do not show us these transitions. And this is the most obvious and serious objection that you can have against my theory. In other words, if my theory is true, we should find all these transitions in the rock layers, and they're just not there. Biggest problem with my theory. So what's the answer to his theory, he says? It's the extreme imperfection of the geological record. Basically this. He said, we just got to keep digging in the dirt. If we keep digging, eventually we'll find all these transitions that confirm my theory. Okay. So we are now 150 years, over 150 years past Darwin. We have over 100 million fossils in museums all around the world. And this very honest evolutionist said this. Knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. Ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transitions than we had in Darwin's time. How many did Darwin actually have? He had zero. Today, we have less than that. It's not a good case for evolution. Also, if you look at the fossils, a couple interesting features about them. First, you'll notice this. There tends to be no change from past to present. You can put fossils in two basic categories. Category one, critters that went extinct and are no longer around. Category two, critters the same as those living today. It's really interesting. For example, if you find a fossilized wasp, supposedly, you know, 30, 40 million years old, guess what it looks like? Wasp. If you find a coelacanth fish, supposedly 65 million years old, guess what it looks like? Coelacanth fish today. And I picked that one for a particular reason. Some of you might know why. Or if you find a fossilized jellyfish, supposedly 400 million years old, guess what it looks like? Jellyfish. And we find this over and over again with shrimp, sharks, turtles, so forth and so on. Same thing. They're the same. They look the exact same for the most part. Some variations distinct, but same, same kind of animal. But there is one difference with some critters. But you don't hear much about this one because it doesn't fit the popular narrative. We do find in the past that some creatures used to get a lot bigger and now they just stay smaller, which kind of goes against evolutionary thinking. Things are getting worse over time, not better. So you don't hear much about this, but it's really cool to look at. A few examples of these. Here's a dragonfly with a 50-inch wingspan. Do not hit him with your car. You'll wreck, all right? It's a big little insect. Or cockroaches do get pretty big today. That's true. But we have found some fossilized roaches over 18 inches long. I'm just saying. (laughs) You can have the house. So I'm going to go over here. We found fossilized centipedes eight feet long. You would need a shotgun, all right? Fossilized grasshoppers over two feet long. Which if they wore around today, this is photoshopped, but it's a good picture. That's what they would look like. All right. Spiders get pretty big today. Some of them do. We found fossilized spiders, or at least plausibly fossilized spiders, with a three-foot leg span. That's just, that's just freaky. Uh, rhinoceroses over 18 feet tall. Kangaroos 10 feet tall. Wombats the size of a mini cooper. That's a big critter. Speaking of big critters, we found big rodents that weighed over 1,500 pounds in the fossil record. I know. Discovery Channel rightly called this thing Radzilla. (laughs) Four feet tall, 10 feet long, 2,000 pounds. 
man alive, all right? Real fossilized critter. We found fossilized crocodiles 40 feet long, beavers 6 feet long, salamanders 6 feet long, turtles that are pretty good sized over in South Dakota. It's a big old turtle. Uh, and then my last one, this is my favorite one I'm going to show you in a second. Uh, my favorite animal growing up has always been the great white shark. Always my favorite one because of its size and speed and majesty and it's just an awesome critter. And you base the size of a shark based on the size of its tooth. Well, we found some teeth very similar to a great white, but they were a lot bigger, belonging to a critter called Megalodon. And based on the size of its tooth, Megalodon got to be around 80 feet long. Same features as the great white with the teeth. And Megalodon, most likely, is just the great white's great, 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 great granddaddy from back in the day. And let's be glad Megalodons aren't around today. That could be a problem when you go fishing in the ocean. If they actually try to eat your boat, your boat is bait, that'd be bad, all right? But we could literally go on and on with this, but I hope you recognize a very clear point as that is this, when we stand on God's word, real science confirms it again and again and again and actually rejects evolutionary thinking. The features of the rock layers and fossils scream a global flood and wash away the idea of millions of years because the supposed evidence for the millions of years are those rock layers. But the features don't confirm that. They confirm a global catastrophic flood. And people say, okay, Brian, you... There's a lot of stuff there. A lot of evidence seems fairly clear to me that that seems to be the case. And how come so many smart people miss it? Because as I mentioned this morning, it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And then it becomes a worldview issue. I'll give you one example. This is we're going to kind of wrap up this particular session. We have found canyons on Mars. Evidently, at least one or two of them, maybe a few more, are bigger than the Grand Canyon on Mars. Interesting. And so the question then comes, all right, well, how do these canyons form? Because according to our secular scientists today here on Earth, it takes a long time to make these canyons. Well, according to many secular outlets, these canyons on Mars, bigger than the Grand Canyon, formed in a few weeks. Say what? So how, pray tell, do these canyons on Mars form in just a few weeks? This is what they said. Not making it up. You can't. Direct quote, a flood of biblical proportions <laughs> carved an instant Grand Canyon on Mars. I'm confused. Where was the flood again? Which planet was it on? <laughs> you see, you realize they're willing to believe in a flood of biblical proportions on a planet with little or no liquid water but refuse to believe in a flood of biblical proportions on a planet covered by 70% water. The question that echoes in our mind is how can they be so blind? Answer, a PhD is not a bad thing, but a PhD does not change a man's heart. It's not a head issue. It's a heart issue and then becomes a worldview issue. And the Bible warns us about this. Second Peter, don't have time for the whole passage. You can look it up later on. Chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, it says this. That for in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing. We meet some of those. And following their own evil desires. And they will say, where is this coming? He promised. For everything goes on as it has since the beginning. Long, slow, natural processes. No supernatural intervention. And it says this. This is the key. These scoffers deliberately forget they choose to reject on purpose from the very beginning before they even gauge the evidence they choose to forget three key things read the whole passage if you would like but here's what they choose to reject from the beginning the creation the flood and the coming judgment why 
Because if those things are true, there's a creator God. He made us. He owns us. He sets the rules. We're accountable to him. He's judged the world in the past, as we see in the rock record. He'll judge it again in the future. And sinful man does not like that idea. So what do we do? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Not a head issue. It's a heart issue. And then becomes a worldview issue. And that's why it's so important that we stand boldly on God's word, recognizing that's the core issue, and defend our faith by standing on that foundation, answering the skeptical questions of this day, showing, hey, the rock layers and fossils confirm the Bible. They scream the Bible's true, and then use that to get to the answer, Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, the unbeliever, what they need is a heart change, not a head change. They need a heart change. So we use these answers to get to the answer, Jesus Christ. And that is so needed in our day and age because, again, as we said this morning, so many people today, they don't believe the gospel because they think this book from which the gospel comes has been disproven by modern-day science. So we answer those questions showing God's word is true in order to proclaim the gospel. The gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. That's the whole point of this. So if you missed this morning... A few things I point out to you, the book, The Lie, Already Gone, this DVD, that's kind of this morning's session. If you want to see that, check those out. If they're gone, you can back order those, free shipping when you do that. The Answers books cover a ton of questions on the rock layers and fossils. You probably noticed I tried to slow down. That was me going slow. I'm not going to try, all right? <laughs> uh, there's so much more we could talk about. I'm just skimming the surface. There's so many other things we could talk about, more details we could cover. You can find those in the answers books, whether for adults, for teens, or for kids. They're all phenomenal. They really are. Take advantage of that. We have books focused on the flood, this brand new book, A Flood of Evidence. Uh, Bodie Hodge and Ken Ham wrote this phenomenal one, kind of came with the opening of the Ark Encounter. Uh, goes through multiple evidences that confirm the biblical event and shows how just really God's word is true in all things, including the past. It's really, really good. I encourage you to check that out. Uh, this one's a fun one for kind of middle school age and up. Uh, this one is about the flood legends all around the world. That's not a whole lot like Genesis. And it's a pop-up and a pull-out book, so kids love it. For the younger kids, I really, really, really like fossils. Really good book for the pre-K kindergarten age group on that issue from a biblical perspective. Or like Ennis for Noah. That's actually a homeschooling curriculum. goes through the alphabet covering the event of Noah's flood from a biblical perspective with no bathtub arcs, which is a wonderful thing. And of course, as we said this morning, tons of DVDs for the teens and ADD adults. All right. The Answers DVDs will cover a lot of these issues. Again, those are, uh, the, actually the Answers DVDs were sold out, but you can back order them. Each DVD covers around 12 to 15 questions, around three or four minutes per answer per question. So you get a lot of answers fairly quickly. So you can check those out. There'll be some answers about rock layers there. Uh, one in particular, if you looked at our ark, if you saw the ark encounter earlier and you're looking at it thinking, okay, that's pretty cool, but why did you have that bow structure over here? What about that rudder thing over here? Why did you guys do that? Is there a reason for that? And there's some really good reasons for that. The Bible gives us the dimensions, but not the features. And we include those features for a really cool reason. If you're curious about that, you can check out the DVD, Noah's Ark, Thinking Outside the Box. This particular talk of mine is not on DVD, but here's a very similar one from Dr. Terry Mortensen, phenomenal speaker for the ministry, does a lot of wonderful things, same content. Uh, and so you can check out that same information there for that DVD. Uh, Flood Geology DVD is a great DVD using uh, biblical history to summarize how you get canyons and rock layers and all sorts of really cool things, coal formation, and three or four minute videos, great teaching tool, especially in a homeschooling setting. Uh, this DVD for two bucks, we ran out, but you can back order if you order with something else, talks about some of those things. And then check this out, six mini, DVD, uh, mini videos on that DVD, and one of those covers the rock layers and fossils, great teaching tools, really friendly for those teens and ADD adults. And then in my book, 
Uh, we got tons of uh, answers in that book on the rock layers and the fossils. Again, at 500 words or less per answer. Great resource. Take advantage of that. There are a few of those left. And then you can back over this one as well. Don't forget about the YouTube special while you're here. What we'll do is here in a moment, we're going to take a break for around 25 minutes, give you a chance to look at the stuff. We'll have one more session. After that second session, we will keep it open for around 20 minutes. Then we've got to pack up and then get ready because we're going to send it off the next day and I leave tomorrow morning. So that's kind of how it's going to work. So kind of keep that in mind. Take advantage of the YouTube special. And I forgot to mention this morning, Hey, unique thing for you guys. We have these pocket guides, not typical, uh, but just kind of unique for you in that these pocket guides are normally six bucks, but they're only a dollar here at the conference. And they cover individual topics. Like what about the dinosaurs and what about Noah's Ark and the rock layers and fossils? Really great for even actually adults or teens. And they're small books, not intimidating. Kids tend to love them. Only a dollar a piece. And so there's a few of those out there. Just snatch those those up, buy those, take those with you. Really good for all sorts of things. Uh, Stocking stuffers later on near Christmas, which is getting closer. It's crazy. And then the magazine, of course, take advantage of that. Comes out six times a year. Don't forget about the special. You can ask them about that if you would like. And then I don't think I've mentioned this yet. You can sign up for the free newsletter if you would like. Comes out monthly. Tells you what's happening within the ministry. And kind of as an article too. And then it gives you some new resources. In the back is a calendar that tells you where speakers will be uh, in the next coming couple months. And the calendar is very helpful. Uh, My wife loves it because if I forget to tell her I'm going somewhere, she can look at the calendar and I get in trouble. All right, so... But it is cool to kind of see where people will be if they're coming close to maybe your friends or family members somewhere else. And then again, take advantage of the website. Tons of resources for free, both video and articles and deep research on the website free. And then and please, while I'm here, if you've got any questions, please come and ask. That's why I'm here to serve you guys, help in any way I can. If you think of something later on, you can find me on Facebook or Twitter and ask me there as well. So what we're going to do is I'm going to close just about on time which is miraculous, all right? And then I'll close in a word of prayer. Do you have any announcements that we need to have before? Come, what 7.30 session, okay. It is um, one blood, one race, one gospel for all. Uh, and this may be one of the most relevant messages we have right now, what's happening within our country on multiple different levels. And how do we approach this from a biblical perspective? How do we understand this issue from the biblical perspective? And uh, I love this talk. Lots of good stuff in this talk. I encourage you to stay for that one if you can. Really, really good stuff. Thank you for that reminder. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. We'll take around a 25-minute break and then meet back promptly. Heavenly Father, God, we, again, thank you for this time. I thank you for the people making the sacrifice to come out and just uh, to hear about the truth of your word, how real uh, science, real observations in the world just confirm what we read in your word. And of course, we expect that, but it's so awesome to see, so confirming and affirming to us. And we just, we praise you for it. I pray, Lord, that you would move in each of our hearts to just be ready to give an answer for our faith and obedience to what you've called us to do. Lord, you've commanded us to give answers. You've commanded us to share the gospel so that you might work through our lives to do something amazing, something we can't do. That's draw a lost and dying and hurting world to yourself through the truth of your word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you would change hearts and minds. God, we pray that we would just be obedient, that would use us for your glory, and we just praise you for what you are doing and what you will do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.